good to see all of you here. Good morning. Welcome to Woven Covenant Church. This season, we've been reading through the New Testament in a series called the CBE, which stands for the Covenant Bible Experience or Community Bible Experience. And uh, hopefully, we will all have finished the New Testament by the time Easter comes around. That's our goal and our objective. And along the way, as you're reading through the New Testament and you start to see questions or you start to, you start to see some things that you want to know more about, um, you're invited to text those questions in. Yes, you can text during service. The number is 832-263-3307. And you'll see that number on the bottom of your sermon notes right here, 832-263-3307. And during the sermon um, you can text those questions in. I recognize that the last few sermons have gone on a little too long, and therefore I feel like at the end the Q&A uh, did not receive the um, adequate attention that it needed, and so I've deliberately shortened the sermon today and the following weeks. The sermon will be shorter so that we can give a little bit more attention to some of these really, really good questions that you guys are raising. Not a bad question so far. Every question's been great. And so, um, yeah, the sermons will be a little shorter to, come to uh, uh, accommodate for the Q&A at the end. I'll also say that you can text throughout the week. Um, if you text your question in, it will go to the Woven Church um, phone, which goes to our Gmail account. And if you text your question throughout the week, that in some ways is, is, is better because it gives me more time to prepare. In fact, we received one question texted in this week. And I don't know who asked it, but the question was a very good one. So good that I made today's sermon, entire sermon about it. Well, not really. It just coincided. And that's what happens when we're reading and talking about the same thing. We can start a two-way discussion. And that question is, in 1 Corinthians, there are multiple references of women taking a more subservient role. Was this contextual? Or do we take this literally? And to what extent... Should women apply Paul's words? So my thoughts exactly, and that's what we're going to talk about in today's sermon. Not just the role of women, but how do we interpret Paul's words? That is where you can get into dangerous territory, where you can uh, lay claim to all kinds of strange things, be it snake handling or strange spiritual gifts or uh, subduing certain people to even legitimating slavery. Paul's words have been used in many different ways that can, in some ways, uh, get us into hot water. And that's what I want to talk about today is interpretive method. Interpretive method. And on that note, I'd like to show this video, if Frank, you can get that video going, um, for all of us to kind of get situated as we talk through this section of Paul today. I can do all things through Christ. Love is patient. Love is kind. Hand this man over to Satan. Women should remain silent. These are some of the more famous or infamous sayings of the Apostle Paul. Paul's influence on the early church cannot be overstated. After all, he's credited with writing a quarter of the New Testament. His letters shape the beliefs and practices of Christians across the Roman Empire and beyond. During his travels, Paul founded dozens of churches and influenced many more. While on the road, or occasionally from prison, Paul wrote letters offering encouragement and instruction, answering questions, and, more often than he would have liked, doing on-the-fly crisis management. 
13 of these letters survive today. Paul's letters typically follow the same pattern. First, there's an introduction, along with a usually friendly greeting. Then, a thanksgiving and prayer for the recipients, followed by the main body. Finally, the closing section, in which Paul shares greetings from mutual friends. Most modern Bibles, believe it or not, arrange Paul's letters by length. Reading them in a more historical order can help you retrace Paul's steps as he brought the good news about Jesus to communities across the empire. Now, if you find yourself scratching your head while reading Paul, you're not alone. Even the Apostle Peter, one of the preeminent leaders of the early church, said that Paul's letters could be, well, hard to understand. Some of that's because for us, reading Paul is like listening in on one side of a conversation. Each letter addressed a certain audience dealing with a particular set of circumstances. For example, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians were written to a church in northern Greece that was facing opposition and wondering when God would come back to rescue them. A number of Paul's letters, like Galatians, Romans, and Colossians, dealt with the tension of Jewish and non-Jewish believers trying to live as one new community and how the whole thing fit into God's larger plan for humanity anyway. One of the best things you can do as you read Paul is to put yourself in the shoes of his original audience. Try to read each letter from their point of view. Who knows? It might even shed light on some of Paul's more infamous statements. Okay. So we're talking today through the section of reading that is the epistles of Paul. And today I'm going to talk along two headings and two halves. You'll find this in your note. First is the structure of an epistle. And second is interpreting an epistle. Structure of an epistle and secondly interpreting. And a lot of your hard Bible questions I think should get at least... uh, at least in a cursory fashion, addressed today. If not, you can text in your deeper question, and I'll do my best to answer it in a fair way. We begin with that first half, structure of an epistle. What is an epistle? An epistle is just another way of saying letter. In fact, in Greek, that's exactly what it means, letter. And the thing is, uh, epistles were not just unique to the Bible. In the ancient classical Greek world, you have epistles everywhere. Epistles were written uh, for political or business reasons or whatnot. It wasn't just used in the Bible. But what we have in the Bible is the genre of epistle. They, they do follow this format. And here I'm going to lay out the four structures of an epistle, the format, just like you saw in the video. The first is an introduction. And in the introduction to an epistle, in the beginning, the first paragraph typically, it will just have an introduction, self-introduction, I, Paul. And then it will be followed by whom it is addressed to, I, Paul, to the church of God at Corinth. And then followed by that, a greeting, I, Paul, to the church of God at Corinth, greetings and peace to you in the name of our Lord Jesus. So that's the first section, the introduction. The second section is thanksgiving and prayer. Thanksgiving and prayer. And yes, he would open up with a thanksgiving, some kind of I thank God for you as I remember you in my prayers. And then we get into the third section, which is the body. And just to round it off, the fourth section is the uh, closing section. It's the closing section, which involves the final greeting. 
So in the closing section, you have the final greeting where he says, well, greet so-and-so. Uh, tell them I said hello, and then you have a, a closing prayer, a benediction is what it's called. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. So those are the four parts of an epistle, the overall structure. So when you read a letter of Paul, when you read something written by Paul, uh, for example, Corinthians, Thessalonians, Galatians, here's a little, um, uh, I, forget the word, I forget the word for it, but if you want to remember Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, you can just remember GE Power Company. Or what was the other one, Kate? GEPC. Anyway, um, that's, you know, those are the letters of Paul. Romans was written by Paul, Corinthians. So these are the epistles. And what I want to hone in on here is the third part, the body. The body of the epistle comprises the majority of it. That's the content and it's, uh, you know, uh, anywhere, anywhere between 90, 90 to 75%, I imagine. It's the large percentage of the epistle. And on this, I'd like to turn your attention um, to a quote by somebody named Gordon Fee. Um, on the inside of your bulletin, you're going to see a quote here on the right-hand flap by Gordon Fee that um, I really recommend this book, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth, I think, is kind of the industry standard right now. It's not just for Bible students. Um, it's for laypersons. It's very accessible. And any serious student of Scripture here should be able to um, grasp this book um, and understand and use it. So say, for example, you know, I hear from time to time, let's do a series through uh, Revelation. And I can't tell you how hard that would be. Um, because of genre and literary issues. And I think Gordon Fee talks about stuff like that so well. So if you have questions about things like that, I really encourage you to pick up this book by Gordon Fee, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. This is what he says about the epistles of Paul. Listen to this. The epistles of Paul. This is what he says. They are all what are technically called occasional documents. And that's not occasional from time to time, more so occasional in the sense that it's arising out of and it's intended for specific occasions. And they are all from the first century. It is precisely these factors that it is occasional or it's occasioned. It's addressing some kind of situation. It's these factors that they are occasional and that they belong to the first century that make the, their interpretation difficult at times. The occasional nature of the epistles also means that they are not, listen to this, they are not, first of all, theological treatises, nor are they summaries of Paul's or Peter's theology. There is theology implied, yes, but it is always task theology, theology being written for or brought to bear on the task at hand. This is true even of Romans. In this case, it is theology born out of his own special task as apostle to the Gentiles. It is his special struggle for Jews and Gentile to become one people of God. And that causes the discussion to take the special form it does in Romans. After all, the word justify, which predominates in Romans 15 times and Galatians 8 times, it occurs only two other times in all of Paul's other letters. I'll pause there for a moment. 
What we're saying here is that when you read something, especially Romans, if you've ever read Romans, you might think Paul sat down in a bubble and he said, I want to present the gospel, I want to present my theology, and this is it. Um, I'm presenting almost uh, my, my, my tome, my systematic theology, here it is, and he's giving it as his gift to the world. I don't know if that was immediately what was on Paul's mind. It may have been. But we also know that Paul was addressing very specific circumstances to the church in Rome. And that circumstance was, I might even go so far as to say race relations. And when I tell people that the gospel was born out of the multi-ethnic church, I mean it when I say that. It was born out of the discussion, not just out of this, you know, salvation by grace through faith alone. It's not just created in a bubble, but it's in a context, in an occasion that Paul is addressing circumstances, and in this case, racial circumstances. How do Jews and how do non-Jews get along and continue to be together? It is on the basis of that context and occasion that Paul was compelled to write his gospel and to talk about justification by faith. Now these, well, always, since the Protestant Reformation, we just want to talk about justification by faith, but sometimes we miss the contextual background to that. Very, under, very important to understand the context. So one will go to the I'm continuing fee here. Thus, one will go to the epistles again and again for Christian theology. But one must always keep in mind they were not primarily written to expound. Christian theology. Whoa, that sounds, that sounds, well, let's listen to the rest. He says, it is always theology applied to or directed toward a particular need. One must always keep in mind they were not primarily written to expound Christian theology. It is always theology applied to or directed toward a particular need. And so, simply put, when you read Paul it's important to understand that he's not writing his stuff in a vacuum inside of a bubble, just saying, this is what I believe the world is like. This is my theology, and I'm presenting it to the world, my 12 volumes. What he's doing is he's actually speaking to occasioned situations. He's doing theology to address issues. And that is an important point that um, I'll come back to. So that's the structure of an epistle. Pretty straightforward. When you read, you'll know as you make your way. I'm getting past the introduction, the initial prayer. This is the body, and then the closing section. But here's the fun part, interpreting an epistle. And this is the second half of today's talk. Interpreting an epistle. And this is where issues of context, this is where all that stuff is going to come up. What is Paul's occasion that he is addressing? What is the occasion that Paul is addressing? Very important when we interpret an epistle because some of the cases that I've cited before that come up, for example, I can handle snakes or slavery is legitimate or women should be stunned silent in church and should not speak. All of these are birthed out of occasions and it's important to understand the context. Otherwise, if you cherry pick, as it were, take these verses out without understanding the context, that's when we get into a lot of dangerous territory. And so, in order to interpret an epistle, here's where I'd like to introduce a word, and I, I promise I'll make this fun. And that word is hermeneutics. 
And when it comes to biblical interpretation, you have two hands, hermeneutics on the one and exegesis on the other. Hermeneutics on one and exegesis on the other. And there's a difference. Both of those tools or approaches are used to interpret Scripture, but they serve very different roles. Exegesis is like this. How many of you have ever seen a movie, any Indiana Jones movie? If you've seen an Indiana Jones movie, you'll be delighted to, um, to know that Indiana Jones was based off of modern period theologians. That's why the first movie is Raiders of what? The Lost Ark, Ark of the Covenant. Because with the modern period, 1800s, 1900s, theologians, uh, they weren't just looking at the text. They were looking at the text, but they were also looking at early sources. They wanted to find out what was the text. They wanted to find the archaeological sources. And they started digging. They started researching. Exegesis involves the task of trying to identify what exactly we're looking at and doing some of the excavation of the earliest texts. The earliest texts, we have numerous copies Numerous copies of all of Paul's epistles. And as we look at the copies, there are some slight variation, but not enough to make the message completely off. So I don't want you to doubt what you're reading. I don't want you to doubt what you're reading at all. One of the reasons why you'll find these footnotes that'll say many early manuscripts do not contain this is because they're letting you know. There's no reason to doubt Scripture's integrity, which is what CNN and the Discovery Channel and the History Channel this time of year are always trying to do. Leading up to Easter, there always seems to be some kind of a television program called The Lost Gospel of Jesus. And if you watch this television program, it will undermine the complete foundations of Christianity as we know it. Which is, from a scientific standpoint, really bogus. There is not much. There's, very, there's nothing, really. And I'm not saying this on the bedrock foundation of faith. I'm saying this from a scientific standpoint. Everything that's been discovered has been discovered. And even if we were to discover anything, it's not really going to destroy the foundations of Christian faith. For example, the Gnostic Gospels of Thomas, if you've heard of those, or Judas, those are, very, those, are, those are discreditable documents for good reason. Discreditable because they are not authentic in authorship, because of their age, um, because by er, other corresponding early witnesses, they were pretty much debunked. So you don't need to worry. Dan Brown is not going to steal your faith with his next Da Vinci Code you're not going to lose your faith. There is no hidden document. The work of exegesis involves getting to the source and saying, what is the text? What exactly is the text? Now, for your purposes, you don't need to know, you don't, you don't need to know that unless you want to. But that's what exegesis is, the excavating. Excavating, looking at the earliest sources, evaluating what was originally um, written, what is the text. But then, let's say they unearth. They unearth whatever it is. They unearth the dinosaur skeleton. They clean it off. They polish it. They put it together, and they assemble it, and it's in the museum. And you arrive at the museum, and you're reflecting and interpreting the finished piece. You're looking at the, the dinosaur skeleton, and you're interpreting what must it have been like for that huge thing to stomp and chomp around how do those teeth function in that context? What kind of muscles must have developed in order to run on that terrain? What kind of food and diet? What was the temperature like? What was the skin color like in the, in, underneath you know, the skies of the prehistoric period? And in that context, what was it like to be alive? 
That's the work of hermeneutics. That's what hermeneutics is about. Exegesis is the excavating, the earliest finding and identifying the earliest text. Hermeneutics is about interpreting what we believe is a finished product. Interpreting what we believe is a finished product. Interpreting in light of its context. Very important. In its context, what was it like to be the dinosaur running around in that context? And so, four important steps in interpreting or to have healthy hermeneutics when it comes to the epistles. Four important steps and healthy hermeneutics for interpreting the epistles. Number one, as I've said, of course, context is king. You have to consider context. We cannot read Scripture, in particular the epistles of Paul, in particular because there's so many ways we can go wrong. We can't read it without understanding the context. We can't, uh, we can't fail to see the cultural context, the Jewish, the Greek, but in particular the historical context is what we have to be aware of. Now, here's where I want to answer that question that came up in the beginning. What about all these statements that Paul makes about women sitting quietly, demurely in the back and just waiting for their husband to teach them the right way to do things? And women should be... Well, that's what it says in 1 Timothy chapter 2. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but they should remain quiet. And I can't tell you how many times I wish that worked with my wife. It never worked. Last time I tried, I slept on the couch for several days. Husbands, I want to encourage you to try to read 1 Timothy chapter 2 to your wife and see how that goes over. Now, that bespeaks our modern context. The fact that you're laughing bespeaks our modern context. But I want to talk about the historical context to this. Now, we don't need to go to a history book. Read the larger context. Context is king. This is what we're trying to teach. I'm trying to teach my children right now, reading comprehension. Uh, I don't know the answer to this. It's like two sentences before. Read the context. No, I'm not trying to speak down on you, friends. But read the entire context of 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. When you read 1 and 2 Timothy, there's a lot of drama going on. Paul is trying to put out a fire. And he's telling his younger protege, Timothy, go back, make sure these false teachers don't make headway. And I believe the false teaching, my guess, um, educated guess at that time, was Gnosticism. And Paul was driving this home, watch out that the false teachers don't take, take over the church. Don't let them take over the church. And so, Paul instructs Timothy to teach the church, in particular, a group of women in this church, I believe it was in Ephesus, who were listening to the false teachers like this and were kind of bowled over by the false teachers. And the result was this statement where Paul is telling them, Make sure that these, make sure these women uh, remain quiet and that they don't teach. The reason is because of a conflict that was going on in the church in Ephesus where the women were, uh, he describes them in 1 Timothy. And 1 Timothy 5 and 2 Timothy 3, he describes the women as weak-willed and won over 
you know, swayed by false teaching, by these false teachers. Now, just in case there are men in this room that want to say, well, see, I told you, there go the women causing trouble again. But the thing is, that's not fair. The reason it's not fair is because throughout the body of Scripture, just as often the men are causing all kinds of trouble. And in this story in particular, where did the root problem stem from? Men who were teaching false doctrine. So this is not just a woman thing. We want to come down on the women. The thing is, men were teaching false doctrine. The women, in this particular case, were won over by it, and then they were propagating it, and it was causing division. The church could not go in that direction. In order to rescue the church, Paul had to address and had to silence the women in that particular context. That is what I believe to be going on in Timothy. And I know that he talks about this in other places. The thing is, if Paul really believed that this is what women should be, silent, why is it then, listen to this, why is it then that in Romans chapter 16, he names a woman as a teacher of the gospel? And he talks about a really unique couple, Priscilla and Aquila. Priscilla and Aquila. And when you're a couple, oftentimes you'll refer to them, you know, Jenny and June, June and Jenny, you know, Nick and Tanya, or Tanya and Nick. When it comes to Priscilla and Aquila, always Priscilla is named first. She's always named first. And what Paul says specifically in Romans 16.3 is he says, greet, remember, this is the closing greeting, right? He says, greet Priscilla and Aquila as fellow workers in Christ Jesus. He acknowledges that there is a woman who is a fellow worker, in the gospel, and presumably a teacher as well. In fact, we see in Acts chapter 18 that there was a new disciple who came up. His name was Apollos, a man. And Apollos was teaching, yet he didn't fully understand. And so it says, when Priscilla and Aquila heard Apollos, when Priscilla and Aquila heard, they took him aside and they explained the way of God to him more accurately. What do you have here in Acts chapter 18 but a woman teaching a man the way of God more accurately? It's an issue of giftedness, friends. In the covenant church, this is where we take our stand. We ordain women and we allow women to preach and teach. Why? Because it is an issue of giftedness and ecclesial empowerment. And there are those that don't like it. There are those that say, I, don't, I can't become a covenanter or can't join the covenant church because I believe women should be silent. For us, it's a matter of giftedness. And last midwinter, when I sat under the preaching of a woman, an African-American woman named Cecilia Williams, and I heard her preach, it had been a long time, friends, since I cried that hard in a sermon. Been a long time. I looked around and everybody was already down to here tears all over the place. She preached with a mantle. It was like listening to a female Martin Luther King Jr. What we clearly have in the New Testament are examples of women teaching and preaching. Now, what do we do about Paul? Getting back to Paul, and not just there, but he also says in 1 Corinthians, women are to keep silent in the churches. They are not permitted to speak but they are to subject themselves, just as the law says. If they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home. For it is improper for a woman to speak in church. Here is where I want to talk briefly about weighing law 
and an interpretation of the law within, script, within Scripture. Law and personal preference. Now, the thing is, if you read everything in the Bible at this level, at the level of law, then there's a lot of stuff to obey. There's a lot of stuff. We should still be practicing slavery. We should still be um, observing all kinds of different spiritual gifts and manifestations. We should still be, you know, here's a good case. Ezra and Nehemiah in the Old Testament. Ezra and Nehemiah, what they decide to do one day for the sake of racial purity, they say every interracial marriage, divorce, leave your foreign wives. So if you're interracially married, you're going to have to separate. They also say all the foreigners in our midst, depart. There are, you know, there's a lot of people that take that very literally. They take it at this level, law. And the reason that there's interpretive problems with that is you cannot read everything in Scripture at the level of ethical injunction. Not everything is the same as the Ten Commandments. And for that matter, when people in this day and age read Ezra and Nehemiah and legitimate kicking out foreigners from our country because Ezra and Nehemiah did it, technically they should be kicking themselves out too because they're not, unless they're Jewish. So that's why in many ways this interpretation uh, and interpreting everything Paul says at the level of law, I'm not sure if that's how it's meant to be interpreted, friends. If we interpret everything Paul says as law, then you're going to have to interpret the entire Bible as law. So when Paul says this, here's the question that I'm posing to you. Are we reading theological injunction and this is the way things are supposed to be? Or are we reading Paul's personal preference? Does that make sense? And if we're reading Paul's prefer personal preference, applying it to ourselves and saying, well, that's the way it's supposed to be for all, I would venture to say I'm not sure if that's the best interpretation of Scripture because then we should also be applying Ezra and Nehemiah's personal preference. We should, we should apply everything that's said and elevating it to the injunction of law. It was not all, it's not all law. The law stands, the Ten Commandments, but everything that Paul says and raising it to the level of ethical injunction, that I think, that I think is... Um, that, I think, is, is not considering the context. If that's not clear, um, or if I haven't presented that well, you can just approach me after the sermon. But that's the first, and I'm going to kind of quickly work through the remainder of the interpretive, about the interpretive uh, steps. First, consider context, as I've spoken. Consider context. Secondly, and this comes from Fee. A text can't mean what it never meant. A text cannot mean what it never meant to the author or to the original reader. If we're reading a meaning into the text that wasn't ori originally intended to be there, that's a hermeneutical mistake. That's an interpretive error. So that brings us back to the original question. What is the context? What did Paul mean by that? And why did he mean that, all this stuff against women, in that context? What did he mean by that? If we read into it um, what was not originally meant to the author or to the reader, that's where we're getting into trouble. 
Here's another good example. In Mark chapter 10, Jesus says, It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. What is he trying to say there? Well, what is the context? If we read our meaning into the context, we can come up with strange interpretations. Somebody once interpreted that the needle, the eye of the needle, is actually a doorway in the gate of Jerusalem. That's what it must have been. And therefore, the camel could get into the eyes, the, needle, the needle's eye if it stooped and if it took off all of its baggage. This is wonderful. This is very helpful. The problem is it's reading our meaning into the text that was not intended. And we know this because there's no such thing as a needle's eye and the earliest no such thing as a needle's eye in the gates of Jerusalem. And the earliest sources that say that were 10 centuries removed. That's exegesis. In other words, there is no proof that such a thing even existed. That's reading our meaning into the text. We have to be diligent interpreters by understanding what the context and what was meant in the context as opposed to reading our meaning into the text. Text can't mean what it never meant. The third is whenever we share comparable particulars, this one's a little bit long, whenever we share comparable particulars, specific, similar specific life situations with the first century hearers, for example, when the situation was similar back then as it is today, God's word to us is the same as his word to them. So when you find a situation which is comparable, very similar, our day and age to the first century, then we can take what God is saying to them as God's word to us. So as you read Paul and as you read his epistles and you hear God saying something to them that has a comparable situation, a life situation to us, you can know that that's God's word to you also. Um, surprisingly, well, not surprisingly, I can use one case. Um, Paul speaks from time to time, I think often enough, against sexual immorality. And the thing is, during Greco-Roman times, sexual immorality was rampant. In fact, in Corinthians, you'll read this. In Corinthians, you'll read about all kinds of strange and sordid things happening. And so when Paul speaks to them and that situation, and I think today, uh, especially with the proliferation uh, you know, of pornography and things that we have on the World Wide Web, I think we can take the words spoken at that time, we can apply it to today. Well, technically, you know, I'm not going to the idol temple and sleeping with a temple prostitute, but, you know, there are some par similar and comparable um, particulars. And therefore, I think what we can, what God is saying to them, we can take speaking to us today. That's just one case. The fourth and last is don't proof text. Don't cherry pick. Lots of times, uh, texts from Paul are taken out of context. They're lifted up and used to argue one's vantage point. And... It's important to be aware of the context in order to prove your own point, and to not just to serve your own purposes by cherry-picking. So just be aware of that. The epistles are easy target. 
when it comes to proof texting. Well, this is what Paul says, and you just lift the passage out of the context. Statements being made must take into account our understanding of the entire biblical worldview on the basis of a whole biblical theology that includes our understanding of creation, fall, redemption, the final consummation. I guess in closing, what I'll say is this. When you read the Bible, and I think this is why we're reading big, you... can, unless you understand the big story, you can kind of trip over yourself a lot. You can make mistakes. I see this happening, and I'm going to make a judgment here. I see this happening in America all the time. In America, in our great nation, a lot of people like to take passages from Paul and apply it to say things that I'm like mind blown, that, that's completely out of context. And in order to develop an accurate theology where if you even want to venture quoting something from Paul, it's important to be aware of everything that Paul says and to get acquainted with the person. To not just develop an understanding of the language of Paul, but to understand an understanding of Paul's thinking, his worldview, and the theology and the context from whence that theology is developed. So before we go picking and choosing verses to suit our political needs, I think it's very important, deadly important, that we understand the entirety of not just Paul, but Jesus. Some people would prefer to read Paul over Jesus. And then the entire Bible, including the Old Testament. What is the Bible saying from beginning to end? What are the grand themes? What is the big theological message? You know why we can't legitimate slavery? Just because Paul says it? Because the grand corpus of the Bible talks about humanity being made in the image of God. And people wanted to legitimate slaves and say the image of God should be subdued by another human being. Why does that not work just because Paul said it? It doesn't work because in the beginning God created us in his image. White, black, Asian, Hispanic, and so on and so forth. That's the way you do biblical theology. That's the way you silence you know, as if I'm teaching you how to argue here. You know, I'll tell you what. If you hear somebody say something like that, don't even say anything. Say, God bless you, and just walk away, friends. Don't get involved in feeding the trolls online because you know what happens? You get dirty, and they like it. Don't feed the trolls online. You get dirty, and they like it. Don't get into an argument. Walk away because you'll hear bogus things. I hear it all the time. You cannot proof text one verse like that, ver that, that passage that talks about slaves and build an entire theology on that. You have to understand theology in order to, in order to understand one verse like that, in order to communicate that. I'm going to stop there because I know that I'm going to start getting beyond time. And I want to see if, there's a if there are any questions. And if there's not, you know, we can, we can there's none. Great. You all want to talk about anything else? Any troll questions or any, uh, did the whole woman, woman thing, did, was that answered well? No, uh, not sure. You know, I think what it boils down to is when Paul says that, um, are we supposed to hold that with the same weight as Moses? 
and the law? Or is that Paul's preference? And what do you do about the women who clearly are gifted for ministry? Maybe even right here in this room. That's why, you know, I believe, for one, women are empowered to teach and preach. It's funny. It's like for the most controversial section, there's no questions. Um, And if that's the case, I'm happy to conclude early if you are. Shall we? Let's close our eyes. Friends, this is why we're reading the Bible in its entirety. Because we don't want to be ignorant. Don't be ignorant, family of God. You are my family of God. And take one verse, misapply it, or just build your whole worldview on one verse. Don't do that. Know what the entire Bible says. Read through at least once. Why? Because we have to have a a biblical worldview, an entire biblical worldview. In order to adequately understand some of the hard verses in Scripture. Dear Lord, we come before you now and we've read the, some of the words of your servant Paul. Lord, we don't mean to diminish him by any means. He served you faithfully all the way to the end. He was the one that took your gospel all the way to Caesar, to the capital of power. Help us, Lord, to understand what it speaks to us today. We want to know your word not just dogmatically or doggedly. We want to know in its entirety. We want to drink deep and rich of its drafts. We want to understand its subtle intonations, its themes. Help us, Lord, to be diligent students of your word. Make us committed today, we pray in Jesus' name. This has been a Woven Church podcast. Woven Church is a multi-ethnic missional church that meets in West Houston. We invite you to check us out on Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. To find out more, visit us online at www.wovenchurch.org. That's www.wovenchurch.org.